right now. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you, you might want to be turning to Genesis, uh, which is the first book in the Bible, and chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible but would like to borrow one, we do have some available. So just raise your hand and one will be delivered to you and you can uh, follow it in uh, the Bible yourself. Or you could alternatively just watch as the words from the Bible come up on the screen um, behind me. So we've been looking at uh, the life of Abraham so far, or Abram as he is known at the moment, um, and a number of things have happened. We've looked at the call of Abraham, how God called him out of Ur, uh, where he was living, and into a land which he was promising uh, to them, his descendants, and uh, also to say that there was going to be great blessing upon Abraham, and uh, that his descendants would fill the earth. Um, Abraham kind of wobbled a bit, really. He went into Egypt, um, kind of messed up there, tried to sell his wife off to the Pharaoh. Uh, did get some money for her. He did get his wife back in the end, thanks to God. Um, and then uh, the last time we were looking at this, so a few times ago, we were seeing how Abraham and his uh, nephew Lot separated. Uh, things weren't doing too well. Lot goes and lives near Sodom, um, which wasn't a great move on his part. And actually... Uh, Abraham has to go and rescue Lot because this great battle uh, takes place between four kings on one side and five kings on the other side. And uh, the, the five kings, uh, which include the king of Sodom, actually lose out to the four kings. And the four kings come and take off uh, a load of the wealth and a load of the people and Lot and his family get taken off with them. Abraham hears about this, um, and uh, well, well, we'll actually read uh, the passage again from verse, um, let's read it from verse 11 of chapter 14, so we'll fill in there. Um, I'm not going to read from verse 1 this time, you'll have, uh, if you want to hear me say all those words of places and people, uh, you'll have to get the uh, download of the last time, <laughs> when I did it perfectly. Um, <laughs> we're going to read from verse 11 of chapter 14. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshkol and Ana, all of whom were allied with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and went as far in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and other people. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedoleoma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten. 
and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Ana, Eshkol, and Marmara. Let them have their share. So Abraham hears about his nephew Lot being carried off uh, by these kings, and he thinks, I need to do something about this. And uh, so as a sprightly 70-year-old, 75-year-old probably, actually, he goes and he knocks on his neighbor's doors, and he says, look, guys, I'm going off to defeat these, uh, these four kings, these four great kingdoms. Uh, I'm going off to defeat them. Me and my, my guys, I've got 318 guys. I've trained them up. Uh, are you with me? And these three other neighbors decide that they're going to go with him. Um, Ana, Eshkol, and Marmara. Um, and off they go with him. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, he clearly got a good reputation amongst his neighbors, hadn't he? They, were, they seemed keen to come with him, even though they're not worshippers of God themselves. Um, I can't imagine that they thought they were going to have a great victory. It would have been quite a dangerous thing, you know, 318 guys plus their guys up against four kings who have just defeated five kings. Um, but they were with him. They were with him. He had a good reputation amongst them. Who knows? We don't get the details of how he was living, but I would imagine however that was, He's obviously got these guys on side. And as worshippers of God, it's our aim that people think like that about us too. I wonder how often we ask ourselves the question, what's our reputation like? What's our reputation like as a church? What's our reputation like as individuals with our neighbours or our work colleagues? We see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7 um, that when... Paul is specifying the criteria, the qualifications to be an elder, to be an overseer of the church. He includes in the list of uh, qualities that that person must have in verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Having a good reputation with people who aren't within the church is very important and you might think, oh, well, that's, that's for elders. That's for people who are elders. Well, actually, if you look through that list of things which are criteria for being elders uh, or overseers, it says here, what does it say? It says they must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manages the family well, see his children obey him. And it goes on. These are all things that surely are qualities for all of us, with the potential exception of being able to teach well. But all of the others are just, well, that's what a Christian is, surely. So a Christian, someone who's got a good reputation with outsiders. That was Abraham. Anyway, after Abraham Abraham has returned from defeating these kings, because he goes out and he has a battle with these kings, and he wins, and he recaptures Lot and all his family. So he's amazing, amazing. That this guy with his three mates next door, you know, these, these, these tough guys, yeah, I'm up for a battle, I'm up for a fight. Off they go, and they win. They defeat the kings, they return with the spoils. And they would have come back with a lot of stuff. You know, all the stuff that had been captured from Sodom and these other areas in the first place, all the things and all the people that would have been captured by the four kings, Abraham has come back and he's got them all back with him. What amazing. What an amazing thing. After he's returned, we have a strange meeting that takes place. And it takes place in the Valley of the Kings, the King's Valley, the Valley of Shabbat. 
And two kings come out to meet Abraham, the defeater of these four kings. And these two kings are very different from each other. And we're going to look at each, and we're going to see what Abraham's response to each of them is. We're going to look, first of all, at uh, the, the one who, it seems, speaks first in this. It, it does say, uh, the king of Sodom came out to meet him, but then it says, the king of Melchizedek, the, sorry, the king Melchizedek, the king of Salem, came out to meet him. So let's, first of all, look at him. Melchizedek, he comes out to meet him, and he's the king of Salem. Salem is thought to be Jerusalem. If you were, are interested in why, you can, you can look it up. I'll just briefly say it's uh, partly because in Joshua 10.1, um, there is another king mentioned who's got a similar kind of name. He's called Adonai Zedek, Zedek sorry, not uh, Adonai Zedek. And uh, so he's from Jerusalem. So they're thinking, oh, maybe that's a, a kind of name that is associated with the area. And also in Psalm 76 and verse 2, um, Salem is identified as being the same as Jerusalem or Zion. Psalm 76 and verse 2, his tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. So it's thought that Salem was the same as Jerusalem. So here comes this king, Melchizedek. He's described as a priest of God Most High. And out he comes. And what does he bring with him? He brings with him bread and wine. And then he blesses Abraham. And Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. A tenth of everything. Now, a lot has been written about this guy, Melchizedek. He's a kind of puzzling uh, bloke. A lot of people spend a lot of time writing about him. In fact, we recently went to a leader's day up in Darlington, and uh, the topic of the day was Melchizedek. And we spent a day looking at Melchizedek, an exciting day. Uh, so we could potentially spend quite a while on, on Melchizedek, but uh, fortunately for you, I've lost the notes from there. So uh, we're going to make it pretty simple. <laughs> okay, We're going to kind of do basic Melchizedek today. <laughs> All right. um, we actually don't know a great deal about him from Genesis. Hebrews chapter 7 does help us to understand a bit about Melchizedek. So you may want a finger in in Hebrews chapter 7. I'm, I'm going to read the first few verses of that. Um, it does go on past um, the first few verses, but this might help us a little bit to understand Melchizedek. So Hebrews chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, and then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law, the Mosaic law, which was obviously then in place, the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though the brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, didn't trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. And uh, the writer to the Hebrews goes on and, and talks a bit more about Melchizedek and about this, uh, this giving of a, of a tenth. So we've got a bit of an understanding about who Melchizedek is there from, from Hebrews. He appears out of nowhere. There's been no reference to Melchizedek before in this passage or any other passage in the Bible. He disappears back 
And he's never really mentioned again in the historical uh, books. We don't know anything about him. We don't know about his genealogy. So whereas you get a lot uh, of genealogies in Genesis and in, in much of the Bible, trying to trace back who was descendant from whom, who were, the, who were their fathers and, and mothers, all you have to do actually to see that is look back to um, chapter 11, uh, and verse 10, we're certainly not going to read all this, but it's just a list of names of when so-and-so had lived so many years, they became the father of this person. You know, it's, it's traced in a historical thing. Melchizedek doesn't come into any of that. He's kind of just, well, who's this guy Melchizedek? Where's he come from? No, no genealogy. Who's his mother? Who's his father? No one seems to know. He comes from, we don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We know he comes from Jerusalem. His name means king of righteousness. And the fact that he's the king of Salem means king of peace. He's a priest of God most high, although the priesthood hadn't actually been established by then. He's bringing bread and wine to Abraham, communion, although communion hadn't come about by then either. He blesses Abraham, which... Hebrews says, shows he was more important than Abraham. Although Abraham's just defeated four kings, so he's pretty important at this point. You know, he's, he's, his stature's risen a little bit, quite a lot. But he's blessing. And Hebrews says, surely the greater blesses the lesser. He blesses him in the name of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. This guy Melchizedek, he seems to know his Bible. He certainly seems to know Genesis. Although Genesis hasn't yet been written And then Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. He has a tithe, although a tithe hasn't been established yet because the Old Testament law hadn't been given yet and the priests haven't been established yet, the Levites. All of these things, which are themes throughout the rest of the Bible, they all come about in this guy Melchizedek. Abraham gives the tithe to him, a tenth. In fact, he wasn't doing it because it was the law, was it? He was doing it because... He wanted to do it. So this Melchizedek, strange character. Who is he? Kind of sounds like someone we know, though, doesn't he? Kind of reminds us of someone. He sounds a bit like Jesus. Some people think he was Jesus. Some people think he was a kind of forerunner of Jesus, a pointer to Jesus, a signpost. Either way, Melchizedek is supposed to make us think about Jesus. He's supposed to remind us of Jesus. So here's Abraham. He's just had this battle. He's sitting down with this priest, the king of peace and the king of righteousness, and he's been blessed by him. And up until this point, actually, in the Bible, in the story, no one has blessed Abraham apart from God himself. No one apart from God. You know, sometimes I meet people and, they, and I, I talk to them about the Old Testament and they say, Do you know, I, I really, I'm not that keen on the Old Testament. I don't really like the Old Testament. It's just confusing. I just want to, I just want to read the New Testament because that's about Jesus, isn't it? I think, no. The Old Testament too points us to Jesus all the way along. The Old Testament is full of Jesus. Full of Jesus. It always points us to Jesus. And right here, Abraham, who is going to be commended for his faith. His faith in what? His faith in Jesus. But he never met Jesus, no. But there are pointers to Jesus. There are forerunners of Jesus. There's a signs of Jesus. Whether this was Jesus, who knows? Maybe Abraham did sit down and meet with Jesus and eat with Jesus. 
share communion with Jesus. Who knows? But Abraham was living in faith, and his faith was in Jesus. His faith was in the living God. So this is Melchizedek. And then the second king comes out. The second king comes out, and he is the king of Sodom. Now, the king of Sodom, obviously, is, is, is the king of this place which was defeated to start off with. So, Lot's living in Sodom. The other kings come in. They totally ransack the place. They carry everyone off, including the king of Sodom himself. They all get carried off. And Abraham is the one who's come in, and he's kind of avenged them, and he's uh, defeated the enemy, and he's rescued the king of Sodom. Now, not that the king of Sodom deserves rescuing, because Sodom was a really godless, immoral place. That's where Lot was living. We're going to find out later on in just a few chapters just how awful this place still is. You know, there's all sorts of things going on, and eventually God obviously destroys Sodom as well as, as Gomorrah. But at the moment, there's a bit of, a, a, bit of a, a reprieve for them. This king's been rescued. Now, you would think this king is going to be really grateful. You think he's going to just say, oh, do you know, Abraham, you know, I was just in a mess. I'd been carried off. Who knows what they were doing to me, probably torturing me, doing all sorts, certainly humiliating me. You've rescued me. You know, I was having a bad day, but it's, it's looking a bit better. Thank you ever so much. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. The king of Sodom comes in, and the first word that he, ha- he says to him is, give. Give me the people. And you can keep the goods yourself. What a contrast to Melchizedek, who comes out and he says, blessed be Abraham. Melchizedek's coming out and he's blessing. Yet the king of Sodom's coming out and he's saying, give me, give me. And that, I mean, he's probably trying to sound um, generous. You know, I'll give, give me the people, keep, keep the goods yourself. You know, it's, it's, it's probably sounding, trying to sound, oh, here's your reward for capturing me. But actually... It was Abraham's by right. He could have kept everything. He's he's the conqueror. By right of conquest, he could keep absolutely everything for himself. But the king of Sodom is going, oh, no, you just keep the goods. You just keep all the wealth. I'll have the people. How does Abraham respond? He responds in an amazing way. He says this, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And I've taken an oath that I'll accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, a shoelace. I'm not even going to accept a shoelace so that you'll never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I'll accept nothing. I'll accept nothing. He he knew that this king was possibly going to go back to his people and he's going to want to save face. He's going to want to look good in front of his people, who he's wanting to take back with him. And he's going to say, oh, you know that guy, Abraham? Yeah, he said, yeah, he's a rich guy. He's a powerful guy now. But you know, I made him rich. It was me who gave him all that wealth. You know, I let him have it. And Abraham's thinking, no, I'm not, I'm not going to have that being said. I'm not going to have that being said. He's not going to be lording it over me. Abraham isn't trusting anyone now for his prosperity. He's just trusting in God. He's just trusting in God who has promised to bless him. He's learned a lot. Just remember a few chapters back when he went into Egypt. At that point, he couldn't even trust God to feed him. Oh, there's a famine in the land. Oh, no, no. I'm in this promise. I better go to Egypt. Better go to Egypt. And he's enticed, as was Lot. He's enticed by all this wealth in Egypt. And he says to his wife, do you know, I'll tell you what. Just, you're so attractive. You, you, 
you say you're my sister. You can go and uh, you can go and be with the Pharaoh if he wants you. And he knows he's going to get all this wealth for himself, which he does. And he happily takes it. And even when God sort of makes it all come good in the end and, and Pharaoh and all his people get these horrible diseases and, and they say, they finally work out, actually, this woman Sarah, you're, he's your wife. She's your wife, Abraham. You Take her back. He didn't say, give me the money back. Give me the wealth back. And Abraham certainly didn't offer it back. And he's seen that it's caused a lot of trouble. He's seen that that wealth didn't come from God. Yes, God's promised to bless him, but that's not the way that God intended to bless him. And Abraham's learnt. At this point, he's learnt his lesson. He knows this isn't right. It's not right that I should get this money. You know, I went into battle. I didn't go into battle because I thought I could take these guys. I didn't think they're pretty weak now. I can have them. 75 years old. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm the guy. I'm going to get the wealth. I'm going to get the loot. He went in there to rescue his family. He went in there to rescue Lot. And actually, the rest of it is a bit of a side issue. Oh, now I've got all this wealth. Now there's all this stuff. What am I going to do with it? Well, he gives some of it, a tenth of it. Now, Kizdek, you have it. Bless you. Have a tenth. And the rest of it, well, you can, he, he's been told he can keep it. He's decided he's not going to. Now, that would have been like winning the Euro Millions lottery. Can you imagine winning the Euro Millions? And then, and then on top of that, just saying, oh, have a load of servants as well. Have a load, have a load of women, you know, whatever. Have it all. Tempting. Tempting. How does Abraham resist that temptation? How does he resist such temptation? Because he kind of knows it's wrong. He's learned in the past that it's wrong. But how does he resist it? Well, he says, I have raised my hands and I have taken an oath before the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I'll accept nothing. He's taken an oath. He's he's decided before he even goes into battle. He's prayed to God and he said, look, I'm going into battle, God, and I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you for this. And I'm going to, you know, I've only got 318 men and they're, they're all right, but some of them are older than me as well. And I'm going into battle and I've got my mates next door. Yeah, okay, that's fine. But look, you know, it's going to be a tough battle, God. I need you in this battle. I need you to win this victory for me. I need you to give me wisdom to know how to, how to, how to defeat them. But I'm trusting in you. And God, you know, I want you to know right from the outset, I'm not in this for the money. I'm not in this for the wealth. I just want to get Lot back. So God, I'm promising you, I'm, I'm saying to you right now, I am not going to accept this. Any wealth that comes my way out of this battle, I'm not having it. That's my promise to you. That's my vow to you. He's decided beforehand. You know, if I was to say to you this morning, you know, I'm, I'm going to offer you a load of money. I'm going to offer you a load of servants to serve you. You can have a huge house. You could, you, I'm going to give you some fit young men or women, whatever you want. Um, you know, and you know, how about it? Do you want that? You know, at that point, I've seen a few nods here at the front. <laughs> you know, some people would be like, yep, that's me. I'll have that. And, and even if you said, let me, just, let me just think about that. I think if you're even just thinking about it for a while, you're going to take it. You know, you're going you're gonna to talk to someone and someone's going to go, you fool, you're thinking of not taking it, just have it. You know? Abraham has decided beforehand. You need to decide beforehand when temptations come your way. 
Because temptations are going to come our way. Now, it's unlikely you will have that same temptation that Abraham had. It's unlikely. You never know. Not likely to happen. But there will be temptations that come your way. There will be temptations, even if you're in Christ, even if you know Christ. Just that temptation to take that little bit of extra money in expenses, just to, just to fiddle the books a little bit, because actually no one knows. And actually, maybe other people are doing it as well, so it's not only that no one knows, it's that you're being positively encouraged to do it by, by people at work, maybe. And, and it's showing them up if you don't. It's temptation just to say yes to those, those uh, drugs that you get offered, or, or alcohol that you get offered. Maybe at a teenage party, you know, and you think, oh, do you know, I'm at this party. Oh, I didn't, oh, yeah. yeah someone's, someone's offered me something. Someone's offered me to say something. You know, if you're going to that party without thinking about it beforehand and thinking that that's likely to happen, you know, you're going to get taken by surprise. Oh, oh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. The temptations will come your way. The temptation to go just that little bit further than than you, than you know you should with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Whatever temptations it might be, how are you going to resist those temptations? How are you going to resist? Now, there's various things that we've got to help us. We've, we've, we've got the strength and the power to resist temptation now, to, stand, to say no to sin. Because now we know Christ. The power of sin has been broken over us if we know Christ. We don't have to say yes to sin. And we've got the Holy Spirit filling with it, filling us. But actually, it's really good to think about things beforehand. To make a decision before, to say before God, look God, I'm going to stand against this. You know, I know, if I go into this situation, I know there's going to be stuff going on. And I know I'm, quite, I'm going to be vulnerable. So God, I'm, I'm saying before you right now, I've made a decision, I'm not going there. It's a good thing to do. We used to uh, we used to run a kids club uh, up in the north of the city uh, for a number of years, and we we get kids from five to eleven years old coming along. Some of you here will have maybe even been along to that that club or or brought your kids to it. Ma- mainly, it was for for kids who were from local estates, uh, growing up around all sorts of things going on. And at that club, we used to address major issues. We used to address issues about alcohol and drugs and smoking and sex, and crime, and all sorts of things like that. And some people said to us, and some people in the church said to us, why are you teaching about these sort of things? Why are you telling a five-year-old about crime and drugs? A five-year-old is not going to get offered drugs. A five-year-old is not in a position to have a relationship. A five-year-old's not going to be getting involved in crime. And we said no. But we want to teach them about these things and we want to help them to make decisions about these things while they're five, six, seven, eight years old. So that when they get to nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, they have thought about these things. They know what God has to say about these things. Hopefully they will actually even know God and they will have that strength. And then when they get faced with these situations, which most of them will and would have done, either in their families or with their friends or at school or wherever they went, they have thought about it beforehand. And they will have more of a chance. And we're not saying that they're not going to fall because it's an onslaught that faces people. And to be honest, you need Christ. You can't do it without Christ. But at least they will have thought about it beforehand. At least they know what they think about it. They've made a decision. Like Abraham made a decision. I'm not going to take this. 
If this gets offered to me, I am not going to go there. He's thought about it. He's walking with God. He's made a vow. And so when the king of Sodom offers it him, you know, maybe he'd even thought before, I'm just going to walk away from this. I've given Melchizedek his 10%. And now I'm just going to walk away out of this valley. You know, I'll just, I'll just leave them. The, the, the other kings, they can take what's theirs. And then the king of Sodom's saying, you know, I'll take the people. You can have the goods. If he'd not thought about it before, he might just think, well, okay, maybe. Maybe this is God's blessing. I don't know. Oh, yeah, it must be. I'll take it. But he knew beforehand because he'd made that vow. He wasn't going to give in. He wasn't going to waver on his convictions. Jesus had a similar temptation, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 4, we read about it. Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, he's been tempted by the devil. And one of the temptations was this. It says again, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. All this I will give to you. I mean, he's got Jesus at a weak point. Jesus is hungry. He's been there 40 days. I mean, maybe he's even thinking, what's going on? I don't understand. What's going on. I've just been baptized, but I don't know. And then suddenly the devil's there. You can have all this. You can have wealth beyond your greatest imaginations. You can rule over it all. All you have to do is worship me. That's a temptation. That's not a temptation that Jesus would have just been able to just go, ah, oh, yeah, it's nothing now. No, it's a temptation. Temptations are very real. How did he resist? How did he resist? He resists by saying, away from me, Satan, verse 10. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. How did Jesus resist the temptation? He knows the word of God. He knows the word of God. How do we know the word of God? Do we understand what God says about certain things? Have we been feeding on God's word? Do we know it? Jesus knew it. And at the time of his weakness, he comes back to the word of God. No. God says, only worship the Lord your God. However tempting, however seductive this offer might be, I know what the word of God says. And I have decided beforehand. I have committed myself to only worshipping and serving my heavenly father. Get away from me. He resists temptation. But he knows the truth. And he's made a decision. He's following God. We will face difficulties. We will face temptations. And it's worth knowing before we get into that situation. Don't just walk blind into a situation and then, and then fall in some way and then just go, oh, it just came upon me. Well, I didn't know it would happen. I didn't, I didn't think that would happen. And I, I, just, I just didn't think and I was in a bad way and my mind was messed up and I was tired. Uh, you know, I, oh, I'd had a couple of glasses of wine and I, my, I, I, you know, no. Think about it beforehand. Make decisions, make commitments. I'm not going there, God. I'm worshipping you. I need you to help me. These two kings. But I mean, finally, let's have a look at the end of this passage in, uh, in Genesis 14, where we see what he, what he actually goes on to say about these men. Because he, he goes on to say, uh, to mention these, these three guys who've come with him, Ana, Eshkol, and Mamre. 
Ena Eshkol and Mamre, the guys who went with Abraham into the battle. Now, I wonder what they were thinking at this point. I'm, I'm kind of assuming here, which it doesn't explicitly say, so maybe I'm going a bit far, but I'm assuming that they are still with him and they're kind of seeing what's going on at this point. I mean, they must have seen some things as they've been with Abraham to cause them to, to wonder about God, even though they didn't know God themselves. They've gone into battle with him and they've come out victorious. Now, maybe they were thinking, oh yeah, we're something special. We're, we're the tough guys. Oh, I'm not surprised these kings couldn't stand up against us. But, you know, they were, they were just his neighbors. They were just the guys who were, who were next door. Um, and then they see Abraham sit down with Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's blessing Abraham. And Melchizedek's saying, blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. And maybe these three guys were going, what do you mean God delivered them? God delivered. We, we were the guys who went out there. We were the guys who were doing the fight. And we've got the bruises to, and, the, and the cuts to show it. God delivered them into your hands. And, it, and, they're, and they're thinking, what's that about? You know, they've seen something in Abraham. So there's something that is, Abraham's won them over by how he is. And then they're seeing something about God. Why is it, it's God who's having the victory, is it? I mean, maybe they'd even seen this oath that Abraham had made. Maybe before they went into battle, right, come on guys, and they were probably all kids, let's go. Just a minute guys, just a minute. I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to give this, give this to God. I've just a few things I need to say to God. And actually, do you know guys, I need to ask God to give us the victory here. Because, you know, thanks for coming out with me and I've got me, I've got me men, but there's going to be a tough battle ahead. We need God. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to commit this to God. So I hope you don't mind guys, but I'm just going to pray. And he, you know, maybe he's praying. Maybe he's, he's making that vow. Look, I'm not going to take anything. <laughs> and these guys are going, what? <laughs> not going to take anything from, of the loot? Oh, fantastic. What's that all about? Oh, God, we're going into this. We're not going to get anything out of it. Who knows? Who knows? Abraham is living out his faith in front of people. Whatever he's doing, he's clearly trusting God. He's causing people to think about God. Living out his faith in front of people. And maybe they were thinking, well, okay, is Abraham going to give away our share too? Maybe at this point when, when the king of Sodom's saying, like, you can have all the wealth yourself. And they're thinking, fantastic. Yeah, great. And Abraham's going, do you know what? I've promised God beforehand, I'm not taking anything. And they're like, what? Not taking anything? And then he says, apart from, apart from the share that is due to Ana, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have what they're due. He lets them have their share. What Abraham doesn't do is he doesn't impose what he believes. He doesn't impose his morality, his faith, onto people who don't believe. He doesn't just say, oh, they're all in it with me, and they're just going to have to lump it as well, God, because it's all yours, and I'm giving it all to you. you know, and that's what a lot of people do who don't have a relationship with God. They think that Christians do that. They think that Christians are just there to impose their morality, their way of living on other people. And sadly, often that is what Christians sometimes do. I've met people on Alpha courses. And I've met couples. Maybe they're, maybe they're together, they're living together, and they're really interested in God. And, and, they, and they say, but we, we, can't, we can't become Christians. Well, well, why not? Well, you know, I, I really am not sure anyway. And, you know, we've had, some, we've had some tough conversations with some of our friends who are Christians. You know, they've told us, they've told us we shouldn't even be living together. 
They've told us we shouldn't be sleeping together. We shouldn't be living together. They've told us we're sinners. You know, so that's a real problem for us. And you think, well, what? all that's been done is, is a load of morality dumped on someone who doesn't believe. Someone who doesn't have a relationship with God. Oh, right, okay, so this is what I should do now. Abraham doesn't do that. He doesn't dump his morality on someone else because all that is, is moralizing. And do you know what message goes out to people at that point when they hear all this stuff? They just hear, to be a Christian, you've just got to be good. To be a Christian, you've just got to live a good life. And, and I can't live that good life. I can't live in that way. I can't do those things. You know, actually, I love this person. And I can't, I can't live the way you... Good luck to you, mate, but I can't do that. I can, and of course they can't do that. Because they, they don't have the power to do that. And they don't know God. And God hasn't changed their lives. So why would they do that? Why would they do that? It just becomes religion. It just becomes a list of rules that, that people feel, oh, well, that's what Christianity is all about, a list of rules. And you know what? It gets reinforced in the media and it gets reinforced all over the place. But it's not the media's fault because, do you know what? We are the light to the world and we are the ones who should be speaking to people. I'm not just dumping stuff on people. It's religious people who try and show by what they do that they are acceptable to God. And Jesus hated that. They're the people that Jesus was vicious with in his condemnation of. He called the Pharisees. That's just what they did. This is how you should live. This is how you should live your life. And and we are living this life too. And Jesus knew there was corruptness inside. That Actually, it was what was inside that mattered. And Jesus said, you know what? You're whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead people. You're just dead. These were the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus is just going like, do you know what? It's all a pretense. There's nothing changed about you. But they were very keen to go around and tell people how they should live their lives. That's not what Christianity is all about. Paul addresses it too in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, uh, and he's, he's, he's in the middle of an argument, actually, about someone within the church. But he, he makes this comment in verse 12. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? He's saying to the Corinthians, look, you know, there's stuff going on in your church among, among people. You need to be con- among yourselves. You need to be concerned about yourselves. You need to be thinking about yourselves. Don't just be thinking about people outside of the church. Don't just be talking about them and saying, oh, isn't it awful that this is going on in the world? Isn't it awful that this is happening? Isn't it awful that these friends of mine are going out and doing these things? Don't judge them, Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying. There is a judge, and there will be judgment, and God will ultimately judge. But right now, it is none of your business to judge people from outside of the church, Paul is saying. Be concerned about inside the church. We're not to judge those outside the church. We're not to moralize. We're not to tell them how to live their lives. Abraham had got this. He wasn't the type of believer who would tell those around him not to swear in his company, not to cheat on their tax returns. He wasn't going to make them do what he did because he was acting that way. Because he had a relationship with God. And you know, the main issue with the world, the main issue with the world isn't that people don't live good enough lives. 
Don't get sucked into thinking that as you watch the news and read the papers. Don't just think, oh, if only people start stopped doing those things and started living better lives and started living more moral lives and, you know, there's, there's the Ten Commandments. People ought to stick to the Ten Commandments and live God's way. Look, the main issue isn't that people aren't living lives which are moral, good lives. The main issue is people don't have a relationship with God. That's the main issue in the world. People don't know God. People haven't encountered Jesus. So let's not confuse the issue with people. Let's not confuse people by telling them that it's about how they live their lives. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about receiving his forgiveness. It's about receiving his mercy and grace. And he will change people. He will change people. These guys will have probably been made to think, you know, hey, this guy Abraham, he seems to be taking God seriously. Maybe there's something in it after all. You know, he's, he's not taking the money, but he's not letting us, he's not saying we can't take ours. You know, and come to think of it, actually, that battle, it did seem pretty easy. It did seem a bit easier than we thought. You know, maybe there's something in this God after all. Perhaps it would cause them to come to the point of thinking about a relationship with God. If you're here today and you don't know God, we don't want you to think that the Christian life is all about being good. Good enough, moral enough. I mean, people here who love God, they freely give their money to him. You know, we, as Abraham did. Abraham gives 10% of his money. 10%, that's a lot, people might be saying. 10%? Actually, Abraham, no one told Abraham to do it. He just decided he wanted to do it. He did it willingly. But people can come to church, can't they, and they think, oh, they're passing the buckets around. Oh, oh, I suppose I need to give something. I don't want to look as though I'm not. I ought to, everyone's been really, oh gosh, I've even seen a, I've even seen a 10 pound note going past there. Oh, that's bad. What can I get away with? You know, we don't want people to be thinking about that. We don't want people to give. The Bible says that in 2 Corinthians. It says, do not give reluctantly or under compulsion. You don't do it if someone's, if you feel you ought to. You do it because you want to. And, and, you know, we want to stress every week when we come here, we say, if you're visiting us, don't put money in the buckets. That's not, you know, we mean it. We're not just saying that. We mean it. If you put money in the bucket today um, and, you, and you think, actually, no, I, did, I didn't do it because I really wanted to, then, you know, take it back. Because we don't want you to give. We don't want you to feel you have to live a certain way, do certain things. In fact, we, you know, we don't want you to go away from here thinking we want you to make you into a better person. But we do want you to go away from here thinking about a relationship with God. Because that's what Abraham had. And everything Abraham did was because he was walking with God. Worshipping him. Trusting in him. But don't get me wrong as we, as we finish off. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that in the church we have it sussed. I'm not saying that we're like Abraham. Oh, yeah. I mean, it'd be nice to think that, wouldn't it? You know, oh, yeah, we identify with Abraham at this point. Oh, yes. Yes, we're trusting in God for the victories. We're worshipping him. We're, 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 we're giving to him. We're, we're taking the, the, the godly route. Actually, much of the time, we're like Lot. Much of the time, we're like Lot. We just mess it up a lot. That's why we need someone to get us out of the mess. Like, Abraham got Lot out of the mess that he'd got himself into. Lot's described as being a believer, in the Bible. <laughs> you look at it and you think, it doesn't seem to be. It doesn't seem to be acting like that. Well, the Bible says he was. 
Abraham got him out of the mess he got himself into. And we need someone to get us out of our mess. Someone greater than Abraham, Jesus, who can defeat the powers of sin and darkness and bring liberation in the way that Abraham brought liberation to his cousin. And we too need a great high priest, one even greater than Melchizedek. And Hebrews goes on and talks about there is one even greater than Melchizedek, one who can forgive us our sins by shedding his blood on the cross, by his body being broken, one who can rule and reign over us forever, Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus in our lives. And the great news is we don't have to be like Abraham and just see a foreshadowing of Jesus in Melchizedek. We can know Jesus right now because he's already been to the cross to us for us to die. And he's already been raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's already ascended into heaven and he now is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has poured out his spirit into us so that we can know him, so that we can receive his love and forgiveness and be blessed by him. It's the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. We have come into God's family. We know Jesus. And if we don't know Jesus, we can know Jesus. So let's come to him again right now and let's worship him. Let's pray first. If the band want to come up.